Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this episode of the Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Frank Del Porta. Based in Passchendaele, Belgium, Frank is a software developer with over two decades of experience in a number of different areas, including video and multimedia, technical project management, and web programming. You can follow him on Twitter at Frank Del Porta and check out his website at webtechie.be. Frank is the author of the LeanPub book, Getting Started with Java on the Raspberry Pi. In the book, Frank teaches you the power and fun of combining programming and electronics using the popular Raspberry Pi technology. Along the way, he takes the reader through the history of the Java programming language, a set of really interesting interviews with experts, and he also aims to help you be a better programmer generally. In this interview, we're going to talk about Frank's background and career, professional interests, his book, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about his experience as a self-published author. So thank you very much, Frank, for being on the Front Matter podcast. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. It's really great to be here. Thanks. Um, I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you first got interested in technology and computers and electronics. And electronics, yeah. It's it, way back when I was 10, 11 years old. I think we were first one of the first schools in Belgium with computers, Commodore 64s. I'm that old, yes. Um, so that's yeah, almost 40 years ago. Um, and the fun thing with that Commodore 64, if you found the right books somewhere in a library or a little shop, um, you could get some, some PCBs to attach to your Commodore and control other stuff with, with the relay. And I didn't know anything about electronics. It's really through these books that, that, that I learned to do that. And when I was, I think, 14, 15 years old, I controlled my Lego train with my Commodore 64. So that was really... First time I was able to program something, but see the physical effect of it. So, so not just a program running on a computer, it did actually do something. And if a train with a, a small uh, magnetic sensor was at a certain point, I could stop it. And so you had this interaction between very basic electronic components and a program and, and, and how these interact with each other. Um, and then, yeah, as you said, I took the direction of, of video editing <clears throat> um, and did some multimedia development. It was a time that YouTube didn't exist yet, but it, there were CD-ROMs. Uh, so then we had a challenge to go from an analog video recording to a CD-ROM. So have this, this whole conversion flow. Uh, later came websites. And that's the moment I went back to programming, uh, creating something yeah, CD-ROM, that was uh, Macromedia at that time, uh, Flash Director, all bought by, by Adobe. Um, so you had this whole evolution from static, simple websites, YouTube started, um, uh, databases came into the picture for catalogs and stuff like that. So I went more and more back to, the, to, this, to this programming. Um, and at a certain point, uh, I joined the Belgian company Telefic, uh, where we created um, passenger information systems. So uh, screens in a train to show the next station. And that's actually where everything was combined. So we had video, we had uh, communication with, with the wayside to bring information to the trains. Um, and that's where I also started working with Java. Uh, these, these services on these trains and on the wayside were both using Java um, to control different things, uh, announcements in the trains. Um, and then I went to another company, Todi, uh, where we can, uh, made the robot, uh, robot mower, uh, again with uh, Java in the back end. So Java is, is since the last 10, 15 years, uh, my main programming language. 
And aside from that, 10 years ago, um, I got involved with Code Dojo. I don't know if you know that Canada, uh, it's also, um, it's a computer club for kids, kids between six and 18. Uh, as soon as they can read a bit, uh, they can start programming with Scratch, a really great tool online for free. Uh, again, you program something and you have a cat that starts moving. So for children, it's very attractive. Um, and these Code Dojo Clubs are organized by uh, people who do this just as a hobby. And they bring their own interest into these this clubs. So um, the clubs I was setting up uh, in Belgium, we had some uh, guys bringing Arduino and, and Raspberry Pis because yeah, they had that as a hobby. And if you compare that Commodore 64 from many years ago and now the Raspberry Pi, it's the same magic that happens. You can connect things to it. You can have a LED that blinks. Uh, if you spend 20 euros, you have an Arduino and, and a bunch of LEDs and buttons and resistors and, and, and relays, and you can make things that start moving or blinking or, or making sounds. And that's something really fascinating that these very small devices, uh, very inexpensive, you have a full-blown Raspberry Pi that is a thousand times, I don't even know, more more performant than my Commodore 64. It's way more, I think, Stephen. Um, and the most expensive one is 95 euros. The, the cheapest one is 15. So that's a full computer. And it's six centimeters by something. So it's so small and so, um, yeah, so powerful. And um, as a Java developer, I wanted to experiment with, with, with these boards. Um, the idea was to build some kind of touchscreen uh, device for the drum boot of my son with relays so you could have lights going on and off and let strips. But I didn't know anything about it. And that's the wonders of the of the internet these days. You can find everything. Um, but still I got blocked. Java on a Raspberry Pi, not a lot of people are doing that. Uh, some say it's even a bad idea. And I'm not going to argue with them. <laughs> Java is just my programming language. Uh, and I wanted to do it. And I use Java. I use Java and to build the user interface. And eventually, um, instead of creating the project, I wrote a book. Uh, first, I wrote one article um, for the Magpie magazine. Um, and then the publisher said, yeah, can this become a book? Uh, then we had a long discussion about writing a physical book, a paper book. Uh, and the discussion was so long that I already started on something called LeanPub, which was also a discovery for me at that time. Um, so yeah, I'm now a writer. Um, and since uh, July, just uh, June, just before the summer, I joined Azul, uh, which is a company um, providing Java uh, runtimes and a service around Java and optimizing Java uh, for your environment. And I'm now a technical writer for Azul. Uh, improving the documentation. So, yeah, you could say that the circle is round. Uh, I, I am a programmer. I was interested in writing. Now I'm a writer interested in programming. So I have those two loves that, that come together at my job and, and what I do on my blog. Thanks very much for sharing that story. Um, there's actually there's actually a lot to unpack there. Um, uh, one one of the things I did preparing for this interview was I listened listened to a podcast interview you did with Airhacks, um, where you go into the, the host of that 
podcast is much more qualified to talk to you about the sort of you know technical details of what you did he, uh, with that really oh, yeah java guy yeah oh yeah 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 uh, and all and all the stuff you've done but um and i i, I will put a link to that 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 episode mm -hmm. in the in the um transcription of this because it's it actually you go into detail about the the commodore 64 story um uh, in particular, I think one, one of the things I love to talk to people about on the podcast is kind of like their experience of technology evolving through time um, and talking to people who started back in the day when um, you went to the store and like, oh, there's a book on something. I'll try mm -hmm. that. You know, it, was, it wasn't it wasn't often that you had an idea for something and then you could just Google it and do it. Often you were kind of subject to what was available to you. Yeah. And, and you mentioned even now getting blocked with. In, in those days when you were 14, 15, using, using books or books or magazines to try and figure things out, if you got blocked, you were, it was hard to get out of that, that block. You know, you, there was no stack overflow or anything like that. Mm. Could, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what that, just what a little bit about that experience was like back when you were, you know, a teenager trying to confront those kinds of issues. That was really my problem. I, I think, I think at that time you had uh, Elector, which has published the paper version of my book. Uh, already existed so they had this magazine about electronics and i think i had one of those magazines with um, an advertisement for a book about programming with the commodore 64 and interacting with electronic components and it was a book in a bundle with that board a pcb board with eight relays so that you could control eight things uh, like my lego train and I live in Belgium. The publisher is from the Netherlands, so that's just over the border. But at that time, that was a challenge for my father to buy that book and send money to the Netherlands. Um, that was already a challenge. And then the book arrived many weeks later with a letter that it said, yeah, here is the book and here is the PCB, but only the PCB. Sorry, we don't have one with all the components and which is assembled and I never soldered anything I didn't know what the resistor was what the relay was I just had a PCB and a list of components so at that time you had these electronic shops uh, we had one in Kortrijk which is where I lived uh, five kilometers so with my bike I had to go to the shop with my shopping list and ask this this person in the shop this is the first time i'm gonna do this can you explain what i need so i was sent back home with a full bag of components a soldering iron and then it started and um after many days when my pcb was soldered with all these components and i plugged it for the first time in my commodore 64 and i powered it on i heard this electronic firework like sound inside my Commodore 64 so I was really terrified that I had, yeah fried my computer and then checked again everything plugged it in again and it worked <laughs> so I was very lucky that I didn't ruin my computer but imagine how this evolved in all these years so paying something to another country or the other side of the world is yeah, one click away Finding components, Google, in my case, DuckDuckGo, anything, and you have your components at, at unbelievable prices. Uh, when we started to go to Dojo Clubs, we wanted to have LEDs. We bought 100 LEDs for one euro and a half, and they were sent for free from China. 
what kind of world is it that we live in that you can buy anything with, with a few clicks? It's amazing, but it's terrifying at the same time. But it opens so many possibilities. The, the experiments I wanted to do at that time would now take you half an hour, and a day later, you have all the components in, in, your, in your mailbox. So um, it's a big evolution. Um, on the other hand, it was a big adventure to get something done at that time. Um, I don't know what is best. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's it, well, it's it's really interesting, you know, because because one natural thing to think is, well, actually, what you can do get you can get all the clicks, you can get all the searches, you can buy things from anywhere for cheap. One thing you probably can't do nowadays, like you could back then, that was just show up at a store and have someone talk to you for half mm -hmm. an hour, who's an expert on the things in the store, yeah, um, and then how they're used. Um, that's 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 pretty rare. But of course, the alternative is a million. YouTube videos yeah. by, by someone who takes, takes, takes maybe hours to kind of go through a whole project, yeah. and put a production Learn, together and show you how every to step. Yeah. Yeah. Go to YouTube. Yeah. <laughs> you'll you find dozens of movies of how to solder something. Yeah, um, exactly. But indeed that, that, that little shop, that electronic shop, it has existed at that same location until that person that had the shop retired. Um, when I was the same age, you had the Tandy shops. I don't know if that was so existed in America. All these shops where yeah, you they sold two types of computers, <laughs> um, and that right. was it. Eh? Um, so yeah, things evolved, and yeah, of course, um, speaking, speaking much of... more powerful devices. But yeah. Yeah, speaking of, of evolving, um, your next step, uh, I think a lot of people would probably expect you went into university and did a computer programming degree or something like a computer science degree, but actually you went to film school. Yeah. Um, and I was um, wondering if you could talk a little bit about why you were interested in film school and what 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 kind of things you learned at film school at that time. Um, I've always been interested in technical stuff. How do things work? I was the kind of kid that um, opened every device which was broken. Eh? Uh, I know how a coffee machine works because uh, I, I took some apart uh, when I was a kid. Um, and yeah, when I had to, to choose for a study, uh, yeah, you then go to a few schools. Uh, I went to, to Ghent where they have a very beautiful school with engineering. Um, but I also joined uh, a, a class uh, made of me uh, to Brussels, to a film school. And when we arrived there, that was in the middle of a park, a little castle. At that time, we didn't notice, but it was falling apart. But it looked special, very special. And inside that castle, you had a television studio. What we didn't know, it was outdated by 20 years. Um, but yeah, it was a very fun environment. And um, you had three types of film school, uh, uh, two types, sorry. Uh, you had the artistic film school, where you become a director. And then you had the other school where we went. And that was a technical, it was an engineering school. The people who left that school were a cameraman, a sound engineer, a light engineer, editor. So we were really focusing on the technical part of making movies and, and television. Um, and that's yeah, when I that's how I decided to just go to to that school because it was special <laughs> uh, and it combined a lot of yeah uh, challenging technologies. Uh, how do you make television? How do you make a movie? Um, to be honest, if I now look back, I would advise myself to go to that uh, engineering degree or uh, 
uh, electronics or, or, or software engineer. But yeah, it's always easy to look back. <laughs> um, and when I left school, um, that was about the time when video editing for television moved from tapes to computer editing. Uh, so um, I was one of the first in Belgium to use a computer to uh, edit video. So I had to travel around to different studios to demonstrate how this worked. Um, at that time, it was a very big Apple with a very big case next to it with hard drives. And you could predict if I now click on this and this button for the fourth time, it will crash. Yeah. So it were really new times. Um, but that's yeah how 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 I went from from video editing to making this a small file so it fits on the CD-ROM and then even a bigger file that it fits on the website, um, and then you had yeah DVDs or then also the the thing that that uh, making a menu on a DVD that you could uh, select a different part of a of a business presentation not a movie but a business presentation. So yeah, that's yeah. <clears throat> Going to a film school was indeed uh, uh, a challenging option also because, yeah, uh, there are a lot of candidates to become a television cameraman or video editor, but yeah, there's not a lot of people who eventually get hired. So I was lucky to to uh, get into this position. And um, eventually you made your way into uh, web development as well. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering mm -hmm. if you could talk a little bit about what, what led to that, that happening. Um, yeah, just out of curiosity and opportunities and luck and how do you call it? Um, at that time, I was um, a technical uh, technical chief or how, whatever you call it um, uh, for a television channel where we did uh, in the weekends broadcasting of, of sport matches. And my responsibility was to keep this system alive and have all these uh, live feeds coming in. But that actually meant that I had one hour of work to start and, and put everything in place. And at the end, yeah, uh, disconnect a few cables, clean up. So I had 11 hours in between that I had to be there, but didn't have a lot of work. So I bought my very first laptop um, and a book about how you create an HTML page. And uh, Dreamweaver was on there, I think. Uh, it was even front page at that time, Microsoft front page, uh, a hell of a program. It created a lot of boilerplate uh, that you didn't need, but uh, had to find out why it was there. Um, and that's how I created my first websites and then found some customers for that, a few uh, friends who wanted a website. And then came, yeah, that became my, my main uh, job to develop websites very basic eh, at that time it was a time of the uh, annoying skip intros you remember the flash animations where you had to sit through if they, they forgot to put a skip intro button uh, so you had these old animations with music and uh, nice in the beginning annoying after a few times um so yeah even those flash animations uh that was yeah many years ago yeah, it was that was actually a really interesting moment to kind of think about. I mean, you know, like people were people were figuring out what's like what's the web, you know, what what yeah. what should the experience what what sort of should the experience of sitting in front of a screen and mm -hmm. watching stuff and 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 be and a lot of people I mean the initial stuff was reading, right? And then then came looking at pictures. 
Uh, but when the big media companies started getting websites and stuff like that, they wanted to make basically movies or what, what have you. Mm -hmm. You know, when you go to the website, I'm going to see a little movie uh, because that's what they did. And you, they, in their view, you were kind of like it was like a version of watching television to some extent. Mm -hmm. um, and and they wanted they wanted to sort of give you a kind of experience, as you said, when you couldn't if you didn't have skip intro buttons, then you were just stuck watching yeah. it. <laughs> Um, when that might not be what you want to do at all. Mm -hmm. But the idea yeah. of having a captive audience that doesn't have a choice about what you show it was kind of the idea <laughs> yeah, yeah, in, yeah. In, 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 in many cases. Um, you had this, this intro movie before you could enter a website, yes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, uh, yeah, and, and it's actually it was really interesting that you mentioned, you know, um, uh, Dreamweaver and stuff like that. That brings back memories of, you know, sort of how how hard web development seemed uh, yeah. sometimes <laughs> at the time and it was like you know these big you know i mean we can talk about technical writing and documentation and stuff like that but you know things came with big huge manuals you know the idea of intuitive ui wasn't really a thing you know people almost expected things to be really hard and complex mm -hmm. otherwise they'd be kind of disappointed that you know they paid so much for it <laughs> mm -hmm. but actually at, at that time adobe really pushed some evolutions in there so dreamweaver was really a good tool from the very First time I used it and coming from oh. the front page, I think that was really ah. And then uh, I was also experimenting with databases. So I had some customers who wanted to show um, natural um, uh, tiles, uh, natural stone uh, tiles, uh, oh. a whole collection of those. And another one uh, was a, a light fixture uh, company. So um, they wanted a database behind it. And Dreamweaver really made that very easy to understand how you would need to interact with the database. Um, yeah, skip intro, there were flash animations. Um, I was really a lover of flash, not only for this skip intro stuff, uh, but also for business presentations. You could build really amazing, beautiful stuff with it. Um, it evolved into Plex and action scripts. Um, if I compare action script and, and the ease of development with ActionScript, that same experience you have with Java and Java VIX. So they were really in front of, of yeah, current things. Um, what nowadays Java VIX can do for, for graphical designs actually already existed with Flash. You could build amazing things. Uh, it was um, it, the same application could be uh, executed on different platforms and on the web. Until Steve Jobs one day said, I will never put Flash on an iPad. That was the beginning of the end uh, for that technology. Um, but yeah, Adobe, yeah, Adobe evolved into more other directions and the licenses became a lot, a lot more expensive. Um, but if you now look into how software development and tools evolved into yeah, both very great tools you can buy, but on the other hand, this open source community and what you can find for free. Um, I was just just messing around with the picture. I want extra solar panels on my roof because they say that electricity is too too expensive. <laughs> um, so I want to to draw on my roof some uh, some other some extra solar panels. There is a Photoshop online. Someone made a clone of Photoshop, which works in the browser. It's free. It works exactly the same as Photoshop. Um, how well can you make something? It's, it's incredible. 
And there is an amazing community uh, doing open source stuff. And that's also one of the things that I find so amazing about Java. When I started writing my book, you mentioned in the intro, I have some interviews. These interviews, these are the Java experts. These are my heroes. And I send them a tweet and they reply. They say, oh yeah, of course, no problem. What do you want to know? Um, yeah, yeah, it keeps amazing. Yeah. Well, it's, it's really interesting. You're touching on something really interesting there, I think, which is that, you know, creativity and community go hand in hand, uh, mm -hmm. you know, with, with, with technology in very interesting ways, you know, sort of coding clubs, like you mentioned, you know, of course, like electronics clubs and stuff like that, 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 you know, can often be very popular. And then when, when the sort of the web came around and people could interact with each other, you know, in, in chat rooms or whatever, but then eventually in, in, you know, sort of more sophisticated ways, they could actually do in, 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 addition, in addition to producing content, you know, like videos and how to's and stuff like that, and just sharing advice, they could um, build programs together, um, which is just amazing. Um, and then you can, you know, when you add open source to that, then, then that this sort of self reproducing feedback loop of productivity and creativity mm -hmm. sort of emerges. Um, and that, that just leads me to ask, when did you get into, um, you know, uh, blogging and, and, you know, cr you know, creating things for other people? Um, I always love to, I always love to write, um, uh, well, in an early, early job, um, when I was doing website developments, uh, we had, um, we created a website targeting a pregnant woman or pregnant couples, um, to give them tips and da, da, da. And we were also pregnant at the time. So I started writing about that story. Um, it was a problem, um, uh, pregnancy. So we were a lot in hospital. So I started writing for my clients. I started blogging. Um, so that became my first experience of writing my diary, but then in public. Uh, a few years later, uh, we went to Kazakhstan because our son is adopted. So again, that became a story that colleagues and family was interested in. Again, started writing about that. And since then, blogging has been a constant, but with a long set of pauses in between. Whenever something was in my mind, um, whenever I learned something that I thought maybe this could be interesting for someone, uh, that's also when I created my own uh, blog. Um, yeah, I put it online. I have no clue what is the oldest article on my blog, actually. So I have to look it up for you now. <laughs> uh, so it goes back to 2007. Wow. Um, and wow. I see it's two articles about ActionScript and Flex. Uh, so apparently I had an issue. I didn't find a solution. And when I found, found my solution, I, I wrote it into these blocks. Um, so those were my first technical blocks. Um, then in between, when I started Code Dojo, uh, I started Club 7 and 8, I think, in Belgium. Now we have over 100. Uh, again, I described what do you need to do to start a Coder Dojo Club. Uh, you have to find a sponsor, a location, uh, then some documentation about starting to program with Scratch and STEM. Um, and yeah, and so slowly it became yeah a bit of my playground. Um, when I do an experiment with electronics of programming something new, I keep also 
a text file open and every link which leads me to I think a solution or part of the solution I keep it most of the time the first 10 links I have to remove again because uh, there were the, the wrong directions but at the end I have very short notes and a few links of what I used to create this thing um, and whenever I have some time left I, I really like to yeah, make that a story again um, and that's also the same thing which happened with with eventually led to the book um, so I wanted to create this, this touch screen controller for my son uh, first problem was how do I run Java VIX a graphical user interface uh, library how do I run that on a Raspberry Pi? I didn't find a lot of tutorials around that topic. Um, and then, yeah, I, it was a long time that I was using LEDs and then resistors and, and all this kind of stuff. How do you control that with Java from a Raspberry Pi? What even is this Raspberry Pi? And what is this pin? And why is there uh, 3.3 volt coming out of it and, and, and 5 volt from another? So all these things I had to find out, um, and yeah, yeah, I just no, kept an, a big list of notes. That's great. You've done you've done a lot of my uh, my own podcast host work for me there by segueing into the <laughs> next part of the interview where we talk about your book. But it's a very it's a very important point though that a lot of the um, the the sort of origin stories of projects are like you had a problem yourself or you were learning something yourself, and then when you're done, you're like you write the thing that you wish you'd had when you'd started. Um, and... Actually, that is that, that is the tip for everyone who thinks: Should I block? Yes. Everyone who is a programmer or any other kind of hobby or project or whatever that you're doing, and you're finding a solution that you didn't read somewhere else, it means that you found something new that someone else also can use. Maybe two persons, maybe more. You never know, but. Yeah, it's 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 interesting. It's also a bit of a, it sort of goes all the way from the kind of cheesy life hack to the like you know best practice at big corporations. But like, it's a it's a boring word, but documentation is an incredibly powerful thing. Um, and so that thing that you mentioned about having a text file open, I mean, there's 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 a few things that I wish I could go back and tell my younger self, do this, you know. And one of them would be like, when you figure something out or do some process for the first time, write it down whatever whatever it is you know it's like well how you know if i want to you know i mean in the old days this used to be harder but like let's say i want to change my address when i move well what are all the places i have to get in touch with mm -hmm. you know and now nowadays what you do is you like you what like open i use spreadsheets for this kind of stuff often too and it's like you know when i move list all the things links to all the change address mm -hmm. things links to all the phone numbers if you need to call you know stuff like that and, um, and, you know, but scale that up to like, let's say you're working at a company and like, you know, people come and go from companies, you know, if you, if you come up with a new process or you do something for the first time, write it down, have a corporate wiki or whatever. Uh, but like it, you know, it sounds, it sounds small, but these kinds of things can have huge consequences for mm -hmm. productivity, maintaining products, you know, explaining them to people and things like that. Um, and, and yeah, and, and are these sort of, you know, ways that lots of books got started. Um, and so on that note, specifically with respect to your book, I was wondering if you, if you could start with um, answering the question you just asked a moment ago, what is Raspberry Pi? Raspberry Pi, a very small computer. That's the basic idea. So um, how the Raspberry Pi is a company, a foundation in England, how the, their, their origin is, can we build a computer 
for everyone so that everyone is able to get a computer in the house even if you're uh, if you don't have any money uh, or just a little bit can we provide you a computer so the very first raspberry pi um the idea was um the, the the connector was not a computer screen connector it was really an analog signal that you can connect to a tv the old uh, crt tvs so that if you could only afford this little board you could get started because you could connect it to your tv so you don't need a computer monitor um so i think that the, the starting price then was 25 35 euros <clears throat> so the it's a board of 10 centimeters by six something like that i think um that was the very first one we are now on the raspberry pi 4 uh the most expensive one is now 95 but it is a full linux computer right? so if you you can you get raspberry pi uh, operating system it looks like windows mac ubuntu desktop it looks very similar so if you can work with any other computer you have a text editor you have a web browser um of course it's not that fast as your 700 dollar uh, laptop you still need a keyboard a mouse a screen it's only this little pcb and um one of the funny parts of this raspberry pi is in the beginning they had this processor that they selected and this 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 chip had some extra pins that you could connect electronic components and they were not going to do anything with it but then yeah during the design they found out yeah we have some plays on the board let's put some pins i think there were only 20 something of these pins we'll see what happens with it what people can do and eventually i think this has been one of the critical things the most important things why this Raspberry Pi became so popular is you can connect whatever device you, you want. Um, I have here a, a, a Crow Pi. It, it looks like a laptop. You can take out the keyboard and under the keyboard you have a distance sensor, a motion sensor, a LED screen, an LCD display, 20-something uh, buttons, um, a temperature sensor, all these components are all connected to this Raspberry Pi. So without the need to wire anything, you can read the temperature in your room. You can detect that someone is uh, moving with his hands above it. So um, it's not just a computer, it's an interface. You can connect stuff to it. And then uh, Raspberry Pi evolved. They also have the Raspberry Pi 400, which is this, this Raspberry Pi 4 inside the keyboard. So you have a keyboard, there's a Raspberry Pi inside, it looks like a Commodore 64, which has been on a diet. It's, it's a, a bit uh, thinner. Um, but again, you connect a mouse, you connect a screen, and that's your computer. Uh, also, it costs 100 euros or something like that. Um, now they have, for people who know Arduino, um, Raspberry Pi also created a Raspberry Pi Pico, which is also a microcontroller, costs $4. It's an amazing device it's so powerful you can connect led strips to it you can connect wi-fi they have now the, the pico v which has wi-fi on board six dollars so these prices are so low if you want to start experimenting 
uh, with electronics, with, with programming on this kind of devices. Um, just leave your PC on the side, don't blow it up, don't connect dangerous devices to it, uh, to it. use one of these, these cheaper things. And yet the idea is um, bring affordable computing to anyone in the world. Um, it's a bit what the BBC has done uh, in England with the micro bit. It was one of the very first very affordable uh, microcontrollers and, and computers that they brought to schools. Everyone at a certain age got one for free. Um, the Raspberry Pi is a bit yeah, related to that. It's also uh, founded in, in England. Um, one problem we have at this moment is uh, a chip sh shortage around the world, and that also affects Raspberry Pi. If you now want a Raspberry Pi, good luck. <laughs> um, they, um, yeah, there are sites who monitor all the other sites who are selling Raspberry Pis, and you are alerted that they are in stock. And if you're lucky, you can buy one. So well, that's. that's that's fascinating. I, I hadn't heard that it had affected Raspberry Pis. I mean, I'd heard about cars yeah, yeah. And, and you know laun yeah, laundry yeah. machines and everything else. But yeah, there, yeah, there you yeah. there you go. Um, it's one one thing I wanted. I didn't want to. I didn't want to like pass over, uh, without actually getting into the a, a true detail. Um, is you mentioned pins, and so for people listening who might not be who might be like they've maybe never seen. I think mm -hmm. it's called a, a, a breadboard or something like that. For yeah. people who are completely unaware of electronics, basically you've got, um, a little connection, a physical connection that you make. Yeah. And um, you can control whether or not there's basically electricity going through that specific connection. Um, yeah. And so, so yeah, 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 yeah. So you have this, this small PCB, and on one side you have two rows of twenty metal pins, one centimeter high, something like that. So um, you don't even need a breadboard. You have one a, a small cable. You plug it in. On the other side you have a LED, and then from the LED you go back to your ground. There has to be a resistor in between, but and, and what's what's a what's a LED? A LED, uh, a light emitting diode. So oh, 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 what LED? Component. Okay, so yeah, 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 uh, yeah LED. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, a very small component, um, and if you send electricity through it in the right direction, it sends out light. Now these pins, uh, more than twenty of these forty pins, you can control from software, and either there is zero volt coming out of them. them and if you put it on one, then it becomes 3.3 volts. So it's a digital pin, it's on or off. It's a zero or a one. Um, so that means if you um, control it from software and you put three volt three on it, then your LED will go on. Or the other way around, if you put three volt three on it through a button, for instance, you can read it. Is there voltage on, the, on this pin or not? Very simple with a LED and a button, it's on or it's off. Huh? Now, if you do this very, very fast, then it becomes a communication way. So you can talk to another chip or another device, like for instance, um, a distance sensor. We really like to use a distance sensor in electronics to do um, as a first example. These distance sensors um, have a few pins and on one pin you have to put for a short time a voltage to say i want you to measure the distance between the sensor and something above it and then it will send back how long um, so it's like a, a bat a, a, a flying bat so they, they measure the distance with an ultrasound so if it reflects they know how far they are from a wall 
it, it's the same thing. The sensor will send back for the same time that it's doing this measurement how far an object is. So you have to read how long is this three volt three enabled or not, and then you can calculate how far this distance is from the sensor. This is a very low value, so you have to be very fast with your program. That's why it's a nice challenge. Yeah? Uh, you have to do a very strict timing of, of how you measure values. Uh, otherwise, you get values which are uh, out of range or, or cannot be right. Um, so yeah, these pins, it's playing with voltages. Yeah? And uh, for people who are, have been using Arduino or other microcontrollers, uh, you have analog pins and digital pins in that world. A digital pin, pin is one or a zero. Right? An analog pin is between zero and 255. So it can be, you can have a, a range of values. The Raspberry Pi is simple, just digital, one or zero. Right? Um, so it's not ideal for some electronic components, while an Arduino is better. Right? But it's always a trade-off. What do I want to achieve with my project? What do I want to do? Of course, there's a solution. You can do the same thing with Raspberry Pi with another chip in between. But yeah, and then you have to start experimenting. Exactly, and it was and it was exactly that ability to kind of control things that that sort of mm -hmm. surprised the mm -hmm. people who developed the first Raspberry yeah. Pi. As I yeah. understand the story, because I I mean, it just sort of you, you actually mentioned this at the beginning. I think I read something you wrote about it. Maybe I forget on Twitter or something. But um, so you've you've you uh. This is now. This isn't back when they first came out. But um, your your son plays the drums. Um, I I used to play the drums myself, so I was I could identify with the story because drums are really loud. And so you built a sort of box or something for your son to play yeah, drums yeah. in. But what you wanted to do was set up a light so that like he knows when dinner's ready or something like that, right? And so like people yeah. just started that doing was, really fun things effect. like that. <laughs> yeah, but people yeah. started doing really fun things like that. You know, they realized, mm -hmm. oh, and and I think I think probably probably what attracted people too was that you by having that sort of on off like one or zero kind of control, you get a really straight, really a really kind of direct understanding of the beginnings of information theory mm -hmm. and things mm -hmm. like that right like what can i communicate with on and off states between two things you know when i can mm -hmm. transmit mm -hmm. it or receive it and it's it's just it just gets you to the heart of of computing um yeah. in a very in a very tactile way mm -hmm. and it, yeah reading a button is very simple a button is pushed or it's not pushed but then going further how can i read uh is something yeah halfway uh, if you want to dim lights uh, how do i read this value uh? um, um in the drum boots of my son it's very simple i have a raspberry pi on top there are two ports plugged onto the, the raspberry pi onto these pins and then i have eight relays so each relay a relay is um so the raspberry pi only can supply three volt three but my lights one is 20 220 volts the other one is 15 eh? so i have different uh stroboscope and and led light and um so all these are connected to this relay which is um, uh, um a button you could say for toggling this this uh, this this higher power but my raspberry pi can control it yeah? and then we have a few led strips uh, and those are better controlled with an Arduino. So the Raspberry Pi is sending a signal to the Arduino. Now you have to send this uh, this pattern to the LED strip. So it's a bit combination of, of different uh, components. And as you said, because I use Java uh, on this Raspberry Pi, Java has 
a million libraries available for every purpose uh, that you can think of, and one of them is, uh, is a web server. So with a few lines of code, you add a web server to this application, and now from anywhere in the house, I can tell this application, yeah, put all the LEDs on red, let them blink, so my son knows he has to stop playing the drums and come down and dinner on the table. Because as you say, drumming can be pretty loud. <laughs> uh, and he drums uh, upstairs, so we don't have to uh, go up the, the stairs <laughs> all the time uh, to tell him to stop drumming. Um, yeah, it, it's uh, th that was one of my, my my main choices for Java. All the uh, libraries, as I said before, it's most of them are open source. Um, so you can extend your application with a ton of possibilities, and you actually only need a few lines of code. Yeah, that's that's actually really interesting. That's something that you go into uh, in in a chapter in the book as well as the history mm -hmm. of of Java, the programming language, and why you know you 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 chose it as the kind of like language you wanted to use for some of your experimentations and and how how useful it can be in so many ways. And of course, it's it's your it's your day job as well. Um, uh, just in the interest of, of time, uh, moving on to the last part of the interview. So norm normally, what we would do is we would talk about you know the, your your book and your and your writing process and stuff. But we've actually kind of talked. You 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 told you told that story already uh, at the beginning, and it is really interesting. I think that just to make that connection, that the company that you bought that very first book from is the company that published your the paper version of your book. And I just wanted to make they sure people, trigger, yes, people, yes. people got that. The elector, it's L uh, E L E K T O R, yeah. and that's just yeah, a really great. Great sort of closing of the loop, but um, but since we've already talked about that, the last thing I actually wanted to talk to you about is one fun thing you did in your book is you have these like you have these interviews with these experts, but you occasionally have some, just some thoughts of your own on something, uh, which is a really great device for kind of you know giving people a get a, a bit of a refresh kind of you know between chapters. Um, and in one thing you talk about um social media, and so this is a big you know right turn in the in the interview. But just before we go, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, because it's it's I mean, an, an interesting story that you tell about your experience and the decision that you made and, and, and why. Well, um, as I said, I'm a big fan of technology and how things evolve and what is new. And at a certain point, whatever new service I saw passing, I registered. Uh, everyone who wanted my details, you get them. Um, and I went to a conference in Belgium uh, with Aral, and Aral Balkan was a speaker. And Aral Balkan is one of those uh, programmers who was a hero in the in Flash. He made amazing Flash animation, games, stuff like that. So I went to this conference, he was a speaker, and he spoke about the dangers of social media instead of Flash. And he's now really a social media critic. Uh, uh, he even founded the company to build something which is uh, you own your own data. That's that's the main story. Eh? Um, and that was really an eye-opener um, because if something is for free, then you are the product being sold. Facebook is free because they sell your data. Google is free because they know everything about you and can target you with advertisement. And I wasn't aware of that before. I, 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 I didn't think about that. Um, and at that time, yeah, it, it clicked and I just started. I haven't used G, Gmail and Google since then. And I, I mentioned the Go before. That's my search engine. Um, I still have my Gmail address, but it forwards to my own address. 
I don't think I get any email anymore on that one. Um, yeah. On the other hand, I'm addicted to Twitter. Uh, everything I learn, a lot of what I learn is from Twitter. Um, but I'm well aware that I'm also a product being sold there. Um, my son, he's 12, is the age of TikTok, Snapchat, whatever. <laughs> um, we, sh we should be more aware of, of what is happening behind the curtains of these companies, I think. But it's difficult. It's, it's, it's a balance. Um, we have Mastodon, which is a great alternative to Twitter, which is, again, open source, managed by the community. But there are not that many people on there, and I don't find the content that I get from Twitter. So I'm still more on Twitter than, than on Mastodon. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a difficult discussion. And I find it hard to tell this story to people. Yeah, most people just don't care. They like Facebook. They like getting free stuff. And yeah, I understand also. Yeah, it's uh yeah. Thanks, thanks for sharing that. I mean, it's it's I've 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 had this discussion with a few people on the podcast in the past. I mean, you know, and and it is interesting how like what what it's just sort of sort of banal observation, but what seems really great can turn can turn bad. And so, for example, one one guest we had a while ago, he he achieved a kind of Twitter fame uh, that became addictive. And mm -hmm. he just he he would watch how many likes did he retweets did he get on every tweet and go back to it and back to it and back to it and think about the next one and the next one and the next one, um, and so that was that was the, the form of toxicity that he encountered. Of course, for all for other mm -hmm. people, it's getting attacked, you know. And then and then but adding on to that, that you're you're a kind of product to being managed yeah. all the time, and and it's just it, it is it is something that unfortunately we you know it, it's. There's, there's when we, when we say some people just don't want to think about it, there because it's partly because there really is so much to think about that you just kind of like, you know, whatever. I use it, I use it for, I use it for fun, and that's all I'm mm -hmm. going to think about. Um, for me, for Twitter specifically, I actually I learn a lot from Twitter as well. I mean, the people I follow are, you know, there, there's an old joke that I, I think I've mentioned here probably too many times, but that um, Facebook is who you went to high school with, and Twitter is who you wish you went to high school with, and. Um, so on Twitter, I mostly follow, you know, like journalists and like rock stars and stuff like that. And so it's like, you know, uh, uh, you know, the guy from Twisted Sister is great on Twitter, you know, mm -hmm. um, uh, <laughs> and, and, and watching and actually watching journalists go back and forth on Twitter. I really like that, too, because they'll have and historians and there's historian Twitter, there's journalist Twitter, there's literary Twitter, there's all kinds of things like that. So there you can you can carve out good niches for yourself, but you can never really get away from the fact that they are, you know, using you, you, you are a product. I mean, particularly the, it's particularly hard to not think about how your attention is being managed when you mm -hmm. use Facebook, I find. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, but anyway, thanks very much for sharing that. That, that was really great. Um, and then the whole story, uh, that was really awesome too. The last question I always like to ask of people on the podcast, if they're a lean pub author is um, if there was one magic, magic feature we could build for you or uh, one terribly awful thing about lean pub that had you shaking your fist at the screen all the time that we could fix for you is there anything that you can think of that you would ask us to do let, let me first thank you for how lean pub works being a programmer and being able to write a book in a markdown file committed to github and get a pdf with a finished book 
few minutes later, it's wow. <laughs> um, I had to buy uh, and became a paying customer at the time that I was really writing the six months because I just loved to check the changes to see how this book really grew, where an image was uh, of a page and, and be, uh, was on the second page where it shouldn't be. And, and so I had to add a line break somewhere. Or that. So um, an amazing thing that you built. Um, oh, well, I can remember when I was writing that I was struggling with the formatting a few times, um, but then you had this free book where you had all these these the explanation of, of the specific markdown of the, the language that you're using. Um, I don't know, the page break, is that something new that you added? I just rediscovered it just recently. <laughs> that you uh, can actually put a, a page break. That was something I was missing, I think, when I was writing the book. That's two years ago. Now, um, I started a few months ago with updating the the the, the ebook to uh, a 2022 version. Eh? So and I discovered that I can now add a, a page break. So that was something I was going to complain about, but that's solved. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and and um, I now have the ebook at LeanPub, and I have the paper book uh, with the lector. Um, it's not the kind of book that they sell thousands. So they made one print. That's probably the only one they will create. But that means that that print from two years ago is from two years ago. Uh, while the LeanPub book, yeah, you can just update it and there's a new version. Everyone is alerted. Um, being able to have... I'm still also a lover of paper books, so I can imagine that people would love to buy the ebook um, and maybe also a paper version. Huh? And maybe something else. Ah, um, I bought this book of Bruno Lovaggi, um, uh, Entrepreneur on Inkpub. And yeah, I was a bit, uh, so I bought, I, I only paid the minimum amount. I was afterwards thinking, yeah, maybe I should have paid more. And going back to my the thing that I bought and, and pay something extra, I don't know if that's something which could be added or which is a good idea. I have no clue. Yeah, thanks. Thanks very much for thanks very much for sharing all that. Yeah, no, that is interesting. I mean, when it comes to the feature of page break, I mean in my in my head it's new, but that could mean it's been around for a couple of years. Um <laughs> it's one of those things that you kind of can't I don't remember the date, but it does it does feel mm -hmm. new, but we've been doing this for a long time. Yeah. Um, uh, that was definitely a popular a popular thing to add, um, so people can can manage, particularly mm -hmm. where images show up on on on, yeah. on the PDF version yeah. and yeah. stuff like that. Um, when it comes to print, we do have our print ready PDF output, so at which people use to publish on um, print on demand services. Um, how easy it is to update, like it's easy to it's easy to update the LeanPub produced print ready mm -hmm. PDF. You click a button, um, uh, and you get and you get your PDF, but. But when it comes to actually uploading it onto a print-on-demand service, whether it's Amazon, like KDP or uh, Ingram or something like that, you know that how easy it is to update and have that sort of propagate through their system. I'm, I, it depends on the third-party system that you're using, mm -hmm. but 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 that is that is kind of uh, updates are are doable when it, when you're using systems or um, uh, services like that. And when it comes to what you, the last thing you had asked, actually that's something that's been a long 
standing kind of request that we get from people, which is basically a tip jar or something like that. Is there yeah, any way yeah. I can just just tip an author? Um, and what we always say is uh, buy the book again, um, <laughs> which is which is, you know, and, and then you can archive the second copy in your mm-hmm. library or what have you. But that is something that we've had been asked for. for, And we we do sort of int- I'm not going to say plan. We do intend to do something along those lines at some point. Um, uh, but that's definitely something people ask for. And it's actually something that like, that's kind of, kind of deep lean pub there and lessons that we learned, right. Is like people wanting to pay, feeling bad that they didn't pay more for something. You don't learn, you don't learn that in kind of MBA school. Um, you know, uh, that's, that's not something you'll hear in economics 101, uh, but it's very true. And it's particularly true in the self-publishing world. And in a self-publishing world where people uh, make eighty percent royalties, like they to, just to boost Lean Pub a little bit, um, we show we show how much the author earns when you make a purchase, um, and uh, and and that really helps establish a connection between the, the the reader and the author. And and also a big thank you for the pricing model, as you say, the eighty percent. I have been I, I had published my ebook also on Amazon KDP. I stopped it for two reasons. The low, um, the low uh, part that you get yourself as a publisher, and that they send you money from all over the world, and my accountant really hates it. <laughs> um, you as LeanPub pay from one account, one address. That's clear. Amazon paying from all over the world, from all different valutas. Um, uh, uh, is that called correctly in English? Um, so you get valuta, you, so you get yang and you get uh, French, uh, you get uh, euros oh, different, and different you get currencies, dollars. Yeah, yeah. Currencies, yeah. That yeah. was the word I was thinking yeah. for, sorry. <laughs> yes, you, yeah. you get all these different currencies and then how, how much they, they, they calculate it. Um, accountants hate it. <laughs> and uh, luckily in Belgium, you have to be in order, so uh, it has to go to my accountant. So I, I just right. stopped Amazon. I was sick of it. I, I had enough. Um, for the, yeah, I don't know how much I really made on Amazon, but please go to LeanPub, buy there. <laughs> well, on that note, um, <laughs> <thanks>. <laughs> that, that's a great place to end. Uh, but but anyway, yeah, but but thanks again very much for being uh, on the podcast and for being a LeanPub author. And for anybody interested in this very interesting book, it's called Getting Started with Java on the Raspberry Pi. Thanks a lot. Thanks. And as always, thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter Podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it wherever you found it. And if you'd like to be a LeanPub author yourself, please check out our website at leanpub.com. Thanks.